Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting. We have Dr. Jared Brown back, which I'm really excited about because this is going to be a very positive episode. (laughs) He is going to talk about positive psychological traits. And I'm excited to hear what he has to say. I've got my notepad ready. I'm ready to take notes. So, Dr. Jerry, take it away. Hey, Kathleen. Thanks for having me back. So, yeah, so if anyone has ever heard me talk on your podcast, we we talk a lot about some tough stuff as well. So Mm -hmm. this will be a nice change of pace where we're just going to be focusing on things we can do in our own lives and with our kids and people we work with just to promote positive thinking, a positive mindset. And a lot of this comes out of the positive psychology research. So if you're interested in learning more about these topics, look at positive psychology. There's a lot of good articles Mm. you can find online, books, different kinds of resources. When you study positive psychology, you're going to want to learn about resilience. We'll talk about resilience today. We'll talk about self-control, having greater self-compassion. All of these things can promote positive mental health. It can help us better manage our mood and our emotions and really create more life satisfaction for us. And it's also been linked to having greater satisfaction and well-being within the entire family system. So parents who infuse these into your parenting practices, they're really linked to wonderful outcomes for your kids as well. So anytime we can infuse positive psychological traits into parenting practices, Mm -hmm. typically children can have better developmental outcomes. And just some of the things you'd want to consider, which we've talked a lot about in other episodes, utilizing trauma-informed care approaches, attachment-based approaches, using non-shame-based approaches, so really focusing on like parental warmth Mm -hmm. and guidance and love, being really mindful of our voice tone, also having good self-control. So maybe we're stressed out, but we have good self-control where we know how to put the brakes on, pause, reflect, take breaks, know when we're on overload and now is the time not to engage in some really difficult situation. Just take a step back and maybe go for a walk, take a nap, 
have a glass of water, whatever you do. Part of this too, by enhancing positive psychological, really health, you could be in a better position to take care of your physical health as well. So trying to get better sleep, maintaining a proper weight, eating healthy, going to the dentist on a regular basis, these kind of things can all really help from a holistic, full body approach. And if we can do this consistently and none of us are perfect, the research really points to the fact that it has been linked to positive emotional health, physical, behavioral, cognitive health, and physical health, just to name a few. Kathleen, I'll stop there to see if you have any thoughts before I go deeper into the weeds. Okay, well, I had a thought. I, I really like the pause because often when our kids get, you know, when they are stressed or dysregulated and it's we're already stressed, it doesn't mean that we need to just stop and, like, reframe everything or redo everything sometimes we just need to pause take a break I think that's so important in in our world right now where everything is just like on to the next thing on to the next thing we think that we have to deal with everything as soon as it comes up and okay. I, I think as a parent it's okay to say you know what you're you're having a hard time here at soccer practice but we're going to talk about this later or we're going to, um, you know, work on this later. But right now, let's just take a pause. If you can teach your kids how to pause, you're teaching them self-control. Mm. You're teaching them delayed gratification. And if you want to live longer and stay out of prison and complete school and have happier relationships and just have a better mindset, self-control and our ability to delay gratification and pause and reflect are absolutely critical components to improved quality of life. There's no doubt about that from the research. Well, yeah, let me just pause to use your word (laughs) there because, you know, we live in a culture and I'm thinking especially of young parents who may be raising foster kids or adopted kids or kids with capital letter syndromes and maybe they don't even know like what does self-control look like because it's so hard to even explain delayed gratification because you can get it on amazon you can get your food delivered to your door you can get the game on demand you can get the movie like everything is on demand so what does that even mean A kid who can't sit in their chair and can't sit quietly, that's self-control problem. Okay. A kid who constantly interrupts after just being told, just wait a minute, Mm -hmm. we'll get back, self-control issue. A kid who goes to the buffet and just can't stop getting plate after plate after plate. People that spend Mm. all of their money in a very short period of time and now don't have money available to pay bills. Mm. Drug and alcohol addiction, sugar addiction, tobacco addiction, caffeine. All of those things are linked to self-control deficits. Now, there's probably lots of other variables going on as well. But if we can't have good self-control, we're typically in 
a worse position to manage your mood. So maybe you get really mad at your school teacher and you have really bad self-regulation deficits. You mm-hmm. might start yelling and screaming at that teacher. If you are an adult working on a job and have self-control deficits and your coworker says something to you that makes you really mad, someone with poor self-control may take a swing at that person or start yelling and screaming, which could result in being fired. Road rage is a form of self-control. Domestic violence, murder, these are all examples of self-control deficits at varying degrees, obviously. Yeah, I really, I'm glad that you explained that because I think that's super important for us to understand. And I like to put it through the lens of, I always say, when parenting, 10 years from now, is this going to matter? Because some of it is, yes, this is really going to matter. And some of it is no. But when I think of the kid who can't sit still, what is that going to look like 10 years from now? Or the, the child who's gorging himself by getting, you know, fourths and fifths at the buffet until they puke, because I've seen that happen. <laughs> yes, you know, have examples, lots of them with that. That's, yeah. Right. So 10 years from now, what will that look like? And I think that's why it's so important to understand for your kiddo, because I hear a lot of parents say, oh, you know, it's just a phase or it's okay. It's no big deal, but it is. Yeah, I see. I mean, where would it end up 10 years from now in some cases, like things I've consulted on? Chronic obesity, diabetes, um, multiple driving offenses, multiple drug offenses, multiple probation violations. These are more extreme situations. Mm-hmm. Some kids in some cases who have profound self-control deficits, they might be less successful in school and end up, maybe you're noticing these problems now in elementary school, take it serious intervention, work with people that know these things. If these things go unaddressed as that person becomes a teenager, they might be more likely to drop out of school. Mm, yeah. so, um, just things like that. I mean, early intervention's key. If you work with people that have FASD or autism or ADHD or whatever disorder, typically they have some level of self-control, self-regulation, impulse control problems going on to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so you have to like, uh, at least the way that I have worked with my son is like getting those habits in there. Because if the executive function isn't there to like make that logical decision there in the moment, if he has a habit, that takes over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what there's, there's a lot of ways we can combat that. But what we're talking about today are wonderful things you can use to help address self-regulation and self-control deficits. Yes, I just went down a a negative rabbit hole, so let's get back up to the positive. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. No worries at all. Part of this, you want to look through a strengths-based approach. Mm. We We need to be aware of their deficits and limitations, but we don't always want to make that the primary focus. So if we can focus on strengths, that's recommended in this research, in a strengths-based approach is usually collaborative in nature. So you're working collaboratively with your client, with your loved one, with the student, 
and you're focusing on their strengths, their abilities, their potentials, their mm. skills, their hobbies, their interest, and you're helping build them up, you're teaching them these skills with the goal that they're developing increased competencies where they can be more successful as they get older. And these approaches have been linked to helping build self-esteem and more positive thinking patterns, but it also is teaching the individual how to be more patient, mm. more persistent, and more optimistic as well. So strengths-based approaches can be very, very helpful. And part of this too, from a positive psychological lens, really focusing on building up healthy lifestyle behaviors. Obviously, it would be great if this could occur in utero, a, a pregnancy mm-hmm. free of drugs and alcohol and other kinds of traumas, mm-hmm. but if that doesn't always happen. But healthy lifestyle behaviors, start them early on in life. Model what it means to have balance, what it means to exercise, what it means to not be glued to the gadgets and the screen and the TV while you're eating. Exercise as a family. Maybe coming up with a nutrition plan, working with a nutritionist, focusing on moral development so you're modeling pro-social behavior. So last thing we want to do is have a child grow up in a home where one or both parents is engaging in criminal behavior or drug and alcohol or lots of dishonest behavior, which unfortunately is talked a lot about in the adverse childhood experiences research. Mm-hmm. Focusing on what it means and how you model and manage stress because life is not fair. Life is challenging and it's even more tricky for kids with some of these special needs. Teaching them how to manage stress and change can be very tricky, but it's very important to start early on in life. And if you look at some of the research too, I would encourage you to look at the quality of life research. Mm. That's a really interesting kind of subset of research I found helpful to learn about. Quality of life research, it really is a multi-dimensional concept and under the umbrella of what it means to have a true quality of life, they talk about wealth indicators, so being aware of socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So you're not like you don't want to model to the person like money is everything and important, but modeling like good financial decision making, hard work, saving money, those kind of things. Quality of life is also linked to having better employment outcomes. So anything we can do to help teach employment skills can be very helpful. What kind of housing environment you're in has a lot to do with quality of life and the community one resides in. Your physical health status, your mental health status, your educational level, what's your social status like? Do you have a lot of friends? Are you a loner? Do you have a hard time making friends? It talks about spiritual and religious beliefs. Are you in an environment where you feel safe and secure? These are all things that are talked about in the quality of life literature. Kathleen, if we have any medical people in here, you're probably well aware of the lifestyle medicine research. Hmm. That's another area I would encourage people just to be aware of. It's called lifestyle medicine. Mm -hmm. Under the umbrella of lifestyle medicine, it talks about physical activity. 
getting good sleep, eating healthy, avoiding risky substances, so drugs, alcohol, lots of caffeine, lots of sugar, promoting positive social connections, and managing stress. A lot of these things I'm talking about, there's a lot of overlap, but they come out of different disciplines. If we look at this through an attachment lens, which we've talked about attachment on some of your podcasts mm-hmm. together, nurturing care, make sure obviously you're promoting health and wellness of that child with adequate nutrition, safety and security, being very responsive and attuned to that child, promoting opportunities for learning for that child early on in life, and then really focusing on parental closeness and parental warmth. These are all things that can help build attachment and trust, and also understanding family cohesion from a family lens. Anything you can do to form greater emotional bonds with your family members, that's only going to enhance healthy family functioning. And over time, that really trickles down into just developing better brain health, better body health, better mental health. And part of having good family cohesion is being in a family environment where there is clear household rules, so making Mm -hmm. sure there's clear boundaries, good rules, responsibilities, but you're also really promoting gratitude among your family members. So you're reminding each other how thankful you are for one another. So pointing those things out can be very, very helpful. Having meals together is talked about in the family cohesion literature. We've talked about this before. If you're having a meal with your family, probably a good idea to put your gadgets down and actually look at each other and have a conversation. That's, That's recommended. Family cohesion is also promoted by the entire family maybe volunteering together and taking up some sort of volunteer or an activity where you're doing it together. And having regular family like nights or get-togethers where there's no distractions, where you're just focusing on positives. These are all things talked about in the family cohesion literature. Kathleen, I'll stop there for a minute and see any other thoughts. Well, I was thinking about what you were saying about family cohesion, and I remember one of my daughter's friends who was, when she was in college, he had missed a final and lived far away, so he came and stayed with us for a couple days, and his professor let him him take the final over again, and so he came to me and he said, I'm from a large family too, he said, but you guys are really different I was like, okay, well, I'm used to getting the you're weird or you're different comments. And, and I, I asked him, I said, well, in what way? And he said, at my house, all of us all go to our own rooms and we're on our devices. He said, but at your house, you guys are all in the living room together and you talk and you have conversations. And he said, that's just different. And I said, different like bad and he said no I really like it so that's really I know that that's common I'm not just picking on him I think that's really a missing thing and some of these things are so simple to do but honestly it is it's hard for families to break those habits once they've been in them to to get that family cohesion back and 
to really say, okay, we're going to have a game night. Nobody's allowed to have their phones out right now. And I think that having the other thing that I wanted to mention was like boundaries. And really, for me, it's systems in place that brings the family together. Like on Saturday morning, we're all going to do our chores together. And then we are going to go do whatever outing that we have planned. Like you're doing it together instead of everybody is separate because it's so important and I can remember like having my chore charts and having the kids had responsibilities like you clean the living room today which means pick up the pillows and you know whatever and friends making fun of me because like oh my gosh I'm not going to make my kids do that but that I don't think that that benefits them not to be part of the family systems and taking care of the home and doing the chores together and then enjoying the celebration of finishing those things together. I guess I'm rambling, but those are the things that were coming out in my brain when you were talking about those. Everything that you're saying, it's screaming at me self-control. Mm. You're teaching your kids self-control and delayed gratification by having them do chores and doing it together and modeling it and doing it before you go on to do something fun. Mm, Yeah. Why would you not give your kids chores? That's the first question. Mm. Because I, most parents do a fantastic job, but if parents always want to make their kids happy 100% of the time and be their buddy and friend, I see this, it it runs into a lot of challenges, unfortunately. Giving them chores, giving them responsibilities, setting those boundaries and fences, having clear roles between what it is parents do versus kids is very, very helpful. And I think kids crave that. They may not say that. Right. But I I think what you brought up with that example too, most kids would say, I just want to be on my gadget all day long. I, I don't believe that to be true at all. I think they use it a lot of times. It becomes habit forming or they use it because maybe they're sad or depressed or they're lonely and I think kids and adults are craving human connection and getting to know each other and if you're a family that's on the gadgets every night start small maybe it's one night a week mm-hmm. where there's no gadgets and you're doing something together and I would suspect quite quickly you probably start feeling better in your body you might sleep better you might have some increased happiness and you might notice some behavioral problems in your kids starting to go down as well. Can't say it with certainty, but I, I, it's not going to hurt anything. I think it's only going to make things better as well. I agree. And then when I also wanted to say something about attachment and chores, because what I found with my kids doing chores when we're doing these chores together, then that's when the conversation starts, you know, and all of a sudden, your kids are talking to you about their week, about their friends, about everything, because you're standing together, wiping off the counters or loading the dishwasher. And if you, parent, are doing that alone, then you might be missing that time of attachment and that time of conversation because they go up to their room while you load the dishwasher and clean up the kitchen. So it's not just about getting the chore done, it's about having that connection and that attachment while you do things together. 
And on top of that, you're teaching them adaptive functioning skills. And everyone with a neurodevelopmental disorder has adaptive functioning skills, mm. which relates to independent living skills, social responsibility, cooking, cleaning, managing a household. So if you're modeling those behaviors to your kids early on, play the tape forward 10 years from now, they're probably going to be in a much better position to be able to cook and clean and do laundry and follow a recipe. I mean, these are wonderful life skills you're teaching them as well on top of forming the attachment, the communication, the bond with them, the win-win. Right, exactly. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pick on my college roommate for a minute. <laughs> Sorry, Cindy. <laughs> when she um, when she and I were rooming together in college, she didn't have any of the... She's smarter than um, me, much smarter than me academically, but she didn't know how to use a toaster or turn on the oven or do laundry. So that really set the stage for me because my parents were all about doing chores together and all of those things. And of course, as a teenager, I was like, oh my gosh. But then when I got to college and met my roommate, I was like, oh my goodness, now I understand and I am definitely going to make sure my kids know how to do these things because they need to know how to do those things, especially, like you said, you know, if they have FASD or if they have some other brain-based impairment where they're, they're not, they need to learn these habits of how to do these things to care for themselves. Wonderful, yes. We can talk all day about adaptive functioning, which is basically what you're saying, but that is a life skill you'd want to teach all kids with a neurodevelopmental disorder as early on as possible. The research absolutely shows, and for anybody too, teaching mm -hmm. life skills will help them throughout their lifespan, no doubt about it. Right. Well, I know we, we covered a lot of ground already in a short period of time, so I think some other things I think your audience might just want to be aware of when we're looking at this through a positive psychological lens is looking at wellness models. There's a lot of different wellness models out there. Wellness models, depending on what model you look at, you can Google wellness models online and find all kinds of them. But most wellness models, they talk about promoting cognition. It talks about promoting nutrition, promoting cultural identity, promoting friendships, increasing our self-worth, taking into account our physical health, learning how to use humor effectively, spiritual well-being is talked about in many wellness models, focusing on positive social connections. All of these things are talked about in the wellness model literature. Mm -hmm. And if we can promote positive wellness, that's going to trickle down into having greater well-being. And if we have greater well-being, we're typically going to have greater hope for the future. So when something bad does happen, we don't throw in the towel. We, we use that as an opportunity for growth and we learn from it and we push ahead and we have more grit. So we have higher levels of resilience. It's been linked to having higher levels of self-efficacy. And at a deeper level, if you can enhance well-being, it's actually been linked with having lower blood pressure. Mm. And it's been linked to having better immune system functioning. So our immune system is very important if you want to stay healthy. 
It's actually been shown to help us live longer and do better in school and work. And it's actually been shown to enhance creativity and problem solving as well. So on the surface, we know all the basics, but at the deeper level, it's doing a lot of great things for our body at the biological and metabolic level as well. So if you want your body to work better too, promote these things. We're going to be in a much better position. And I'm also, when, when we study this, I'm a big, big fan of green space and blue space. I can't remember if we've ever talked about that in other topics we've done, but... I don't think basi- so. Basically, green space and blue space is getting people outside in nature and around water. Mm, if you yeah. Google green space, it talks a lot about people who get out in nature more. It reduces their stress and improves their mood. They sleep better. It's a way to get exercise. It's, it's just fascinating research. So it's called green space and blue space as well. Well, and it reminds me of the book um, Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre, where he talks about just, you know, the studies that he did, just taking kids outside were, and letting them play in the woods, in the creek, and, and just without organized sports, you know, just that kind of play and how it was reducing their anxiety and their ADHD symptoms and all of these things. And I've read that book like two or three times, and I am I agree. It's so important. So, guys, if you haven't looked into any of this, look up green space and blue space. It's so important to get our kids outside. And when I say outside, not just for baseball practice, not just, just to let them creatively play, and pick up rocks in the creek and turn them over and dig a hole and, you know, those sorts of things are so important. Huge for brain development. And part of that, too, you can Google walking therapy. That's an actual thing. Mm-hmm. You can Google drum-based interventions where people get together and do drumming. Garden That's therapy, cool. therapeutic gardening is a thing that you can find in this literature. Um, there's hiking therapy, there's wilderness therapy, there's all kinds of things out there, different groups, different certifications, different programs on basically just getting outside, getting around people, getting fresh air and doing the things that are really good for us rather than being cooped up in a basement with no windows and on the screen all day long and snacking on sugar sweet beverages and fast food and the list goes on. So get outside and have some fun. Right. And the thing is, if you've never, like, if you didn't grow up doing these sorts of things, that's why you need to look them up and maybe find a group that you can do these with because it is intimidating. If you've never been hiking before, you don't want to just take off and go hiking. You want to find somebody to hike with and you want to do these things together until you feel comfortable. I know because there's a lot of fear and anxiety about getting outdoors if you've never been outdoors. I only know this by talking to a lot of parents whose kids were scared to death to go outdoors because they had been raised in an institution, in an orphanage. So that just kind of, you know, that's why I just wanted to throw that one out there. So any last piece of advice as we close this episode out? A couple other things. Anytime we can promote self-compassion, tons of wonderful research on that. Another area of research that people probably have never heard of, but it's common sense, is called mattering. 
if you just Google mannering, hmm. it's helping. It's we all. I mean, you as a parent, you always do it, but helping people feel important and valued and appreciated and recognized. Okay. There's actually a ton of research about mannering interventions. Being aware too of the research on promoting lifelong learning. That is a huge thing. Right. Getting people interested in learning and taking up a skill or a hobby and helping them use their brain is linked to so many positive attributes. Promoting optimism, empowerment, self-efficacy, gratitude, and even promoting identity development, reflective journaling, self-forgiveness, and even the savoring literature. That's pretty fascinating stuff too. Teaching people how to savor the moment rather than just brushing off the good stuff and going right back to thinking about the negative. Savoring interventions is a real thing as well. Volunteering, as I mentioned before, can be very helpful. And even promoting neighborhood attachment. We talked mm-hmm. about attachment before, but what is one's attachment to their community and neighborhood? Getting connected to positive activities and walking and gardening and just those kind of things. And we could spend all day talking about these kinds of topics, but that's kind of positive psychological interventions in a nutshell. Well, and I think the most wonderful thing about all of these things that you have listed is they're within our power to be proactive and do them. And so, do them right now. Right. Definitely. Yep. It may take time to change the thinking patterns in the brain, but just starting to do it, you're starting to fight against maybe old patterns of behavior. And one practical tip would be put down the gadgets one night a week and just get together or go outside and sit outside as a family and go to a park, something like that. Start small. Right. I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show again today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me back. I truly appreciate it. All right. We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on TraumaInformedParenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at traumainformedparenting.com.